Okay. Do you remember old King Jehoiakim? Jehoiakim. Jeremiah chapter 36. Chapter 36 of, of Jeremiah. God instructs Jeremiah to take his words and have them written in a scroll, on a scroll. If you look there at the first few verses of Jeremiah 36, it's amazing. God said, it may be that my people will, will hear these warnings and turn away from the evil that they are doing. And so we have here a very explicit illustration of, really an illustration of inspiration. God speaks to a man like Jeremiah. Jeremiah relates what he hears to uh, the scroll writer by the name of Baruch and another fellow by the name of Jehudah. Uh, he reads the scroll to people. Okay. And so throughout the chapter of Jeremiah 36, they're reading this scroll for the benefit of anyone who would hear. And the scroll comes to the king. Look on down to Jeremiah 36, verses 20 to 23, 24, 25. Comes to old Jehoiakim. It's winter time. And they've got a fire pot there warming themselves. And evidently the scroll contained the warnings about the upcoming Babylonian captivity. Jehoiakim didn't like that at all. Didn't like those parts. And so as, as the reader would read, he would take one column and cut it with his penknife and cast it into the fire. And then he would take God's word on a scroll and cut the next column after it was read and cast it into a fire and so on because he did not care one bit for what was being read before him. Interesting that Jehoiakim is the son of Josiah. And good old King Josiah had great respect for the word of God. And when he heard the words, he, he created a restoration in his time. But oh, how things can change from one generation to the next. So Jehoiakim is known for his pen knife, using that pen knife to cut into the scroll of God's word, and then casting that, those pieces into the fire. I want to take that idea with you for a few minutes this evening and notice some thoughts that are out here that chop away at God's word. There are some thoughts that get circulated in the religious society that chop away at God's word, that basically take God's word right out of our hands. And so let's focus on these few ideas uh, for a few minutes. First of all, there is this ideal that Jesus ought to be looked at as a good moral teacher more than being the Son of God. That Jesus ought to be, it ought to be emphasized more that he is a good moral teacher, a good moral man, was a good moral man, more than him being the Son of God that you ought to set him up as more of a model for living, not as an object of worship, you see. You'd be surprised how many people associated even with Jesus would, would begin to swallow this kind of idea. 
Can you imagine the number of scriptures that would be taken away if you just decided not to preach, not to teach, not to share, not to meditate upon the fact that Jesus is indeed the Son of God? Now, of course, this comes down to a couple ideas. This comes down to a question of reality and a question of authority. Let's think about reality for a second. Jesus is declared to be the Son of God by and large by His miracles. By His miracles. John 20, 30, and 31, you recall John closing out his biography of Jesus by saying, Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, through his miracles and other uh, happenings with Jesus and who he was. But by and large, through his miracles, he proved himself to be the Son of God. Let me ask you this. How do you know that his miracles were true? Did Jesus truly do miracles? Did he really do miracles? Well, he did. And here are some thoughts along that line. There's no record of Jesus given either in scripture or, or secular sources that does not refer to him as a miracle worker. Okay. You recall in John 3, verses 1 and 2, that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and he said to Jesus, we know, we know that you are a teacher of God because no man could do these signs except that God is with him. And so you can't find a a document that refers to Jesus that does not also refer to him as a miracle worker. Imagine this. Suppose you took all the miracles and the settings of those miracles and you cut those out of Scripture. What would you have left? What would you have left in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? You, you, would, have just, you would just have ramblings of Scripture. It wouldn't make good sense uh, at all. Jesus indeed was a miracle worker. Think about the crowds. Think about the crowds. The crowds assembled around Jesus, for some part, for some of them, it was because he was explaining Scripture so well, especially from the Old Testament. But, but by and large, it was because of his miracles. If you look in Matthew chapter uh, 4, in verses 23, 24, and 25, Matthew 4, as Jesus gets, he gets started in his ministry, Matthew 4, 23 to 25, you see there that he is healing all sorts of sicknesses and those who have paralysis and those who are even uh, possessed with, with demons. And his fame, it says, spread abroad. And the crowds just begin to grow and to grow and grow because of these obvious miracles uh, that he was doing. And of course, don't forget the, the greatest miracle of all that Jesus promised and predicted that he would be raised from the dead on the third day and he indeed was. Romans 1 verse 4 says that Jesus is declared to be the Son of God in the spirit of holiness. He is declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection, by His resurrection from His dead, from the dead. And so to think of Jesus as not being the Son of God is not even, is not even in touch with reality, but think about the authority of this. If Jesus is not the Son of God, what kind of moral authority would he have at all? In other words, if he is not the Son of God, then why would we bother to listen to him? 
if Jesus is not the Son of God, then that means he would have parts of his being or parts of his teachings would have, uh, he would be fallible and there would be some error in it. And so uh, if he's not the Son of God, then you could just kind of pick and choose which of the teachings you like the best. If Jesus is not the Son of God, then it would question his authority. In fact, who would be the authority? If Jesus is not the Son of God, then what does it come down to? Who becomes the authority then in religion? Well, you and I do, you see. Because we get to pick and choose what we like and what we don't like, and therefore uh, I become the authority, you become the authority. Good old self is back in control, and that's, that's why people come up with these ideals, because there's that constant resistance to Jesus being in control. An individual himself wants to be in control. Now, would Christianity even exist? Would the church even exist if Jesus was not the Son of God? Of course it wouldn't. You know, Jesus based the, the entire existence on the church in Matthew 16 upon the fact that he is the Son of God. When Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I say unto you that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. In 1 Corinthians 15, 13 to 17, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said that, that if, if Christ has not been risen from the dead, then he's not the Son of God. If Christ has not been risen from the dead, then our, then our preaching is in vain, our faith is in vain, our hope is in vain. In fact, if Jesus is not the Son of God, then whatever is left dwindles down to a bunch of do's and don'ts. Just a bunch of do's and don'ts. But Jesus is the Son of God, and being a Christian is a lot more than just some do's and don'ts. Being a Christian is being devoted to Christ first. Being a Christian is understanding and appreciating the fact that, that God is calling sinful man back to himself through Jesus and, and his gospel. But I want us to understand that there are thoughts out here in the world that chop away at the word of God, and this is one of them, to look to Jesus as a model of living because everybody wants to wants to claim, everybody wants to assume, everybody wants to admit that indeed he had some good moral teachings, but they don't want to go further than that because that puts Jesus in the authority seat and not themselves. Here's a second thought, and that is that we ought to, we ought to affirm someone's potential more than pointing out the sin in their life. That's a thought out there in the religious society that what you ought to be doing is affirming the potential that people have as individuals and not pointing out uh, their sin. You see. Now all of us would agree we don't want to walk around all the time saying you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, and I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm bad. But nonetheless, we've got to stick with the Word. And this is just telling us that the world in general, in general does not like a few things. 
First, the world does not like sin. Stop talking about sin. The world doesn't want to hear about sin. How many scriptures would that eliminate? If you stop, have you looked at, have you looked up the word sin in the back of your Bible lately? Do you still have one of those huge, thick Bible concordances? Okay. We've still got some around here. If you go to the word sin in one of those concordances, open up to the word sin. How many pages and pages will sin and, and similar words cover in that concordance? You see, the world doesn't like uh, sin. And the world doesn't like the cross. The cross. You know, that's, that doesn't fit many in the world. The cross. Blood sacrifice, substitutionary sacrifice. They don't, they don't want that. They don't want that. They don't, they don't want to come to church and have to think about how much Jesus suffered and what that must have looked like and how filthy and dirty that must have been and how bloody that was and how, how, what kind of vision that, that, um, that brings up in their mind. And they don't want to think about that because they don't want to think about sin. As Brother Brent mentioned this morning at the, at the Lord's table, that the reason that we're here, the reason we're gathering around the Lord's table, is in, in part we are thinking about the suffering that Jesus endured. Why did he have to suffer? Because of sin. Because of sin. Okay. And the world doesn't want to have to think about that. Ephesians 2, 16 says that God might reconcile both Jew and Gentile into one body through the cross, having slain the hostility that was there. Okay. That goes right against the grain of the world. They don't want to have to think about this blood sacrifice and the hostility while they're eating their chicken salad. You know. They don't have to think about that. But this is, what, this is where we're at. This is, this is scripture. The world doesn't like the wrath of God. The three things the world doesn't like, sin, the cross and the wrath of God. But have you read Romans 5, verse 8 lately? God commends his own love toward us in that while, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But then read verse 9. Being therefore justified by his blood, we can be saved from the wrath of God. There it is. Romans 5, verse 9. The wrath of God. If we're not saved from our sins, we are facing the wrath of God. And it's Hebrews 10 30 and 31 mention it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of that wrathful God if we're not saved from our sins. You see, it comes down to diagnosis and solution. If you get the wrong diagnosis, you get the wrong solution. My grandpa Cooper on my mother's side, he had a, he had a, what they call a light heart attack. It's not what killed him eventually, but he had a light heart attack one time, and, and he was over at our house a few days after his heart attack, and he looked at me and said, Dave, he said, that thing started right there in my jaw. In my jaw. I said, your jaw? He said, right here at the bottom of my teeth. He said, that's what took me to the doctor. He said, I started to go to the dentist, but then he went on to the doctor, and he was having pain in his and his, in his jaw, almost like locked jaw, in a severe pain. He said, that thing started in my jaw, a heart attack. Well, the 
that had been, if they had looked at that as a tooth problem instead of a, a heart problem, then something, but they did, they, they treated him for, for a heart problem. Okay. I have a pain in my shoulder, and some, if someone says, well, that has to do with your shoulder, and then another one comes along and says, well, that may be a gallbladder trouble, then the thing is, the wrong diagnosis leads to a wrong solution. And this is what we got here in our battle with the world, you see. The world is saying the problem is that people are not reaching their full potential. Okay? They've got too much self-doubt. We've got to build them up. We've got to make them feel good. Okay? That's the problem in the world. Well, if that's the problem, if that's the diagnosis, then there's going to be a different solution. But Jesus didn't come to save from self-doubt. He saves from sin. A third thought that, that's out there that, some, that will definitely chop away at the Word of God is the idea that unity among believers is more important than making judgments. That unity among believers is more important than making judgments. The one verse everybody knows, of course, is Matthew 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. It used to be John 3, 16, didn't it? You used to see that on TV all the time, didn't you? John 3, 16. Well, now that's been taken over by Matthew 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. Okay. And we all know what the bottom line is on this. We all understand what the bottom line The bottom line is that nobody does anything wrong. Nobody's wrong now. Whatever it is that anybody does, it's just simply not wrong. Because judge not that you be not judged. Well, here are a few facts about judging that I think that can help us. Jesus said in John 7, 24, judge righteous judgment. So first of all, judging is a command. We must judge. It's not an option. We must judge. You see the Lord's words there in John 7, 24. Judge righteous judgment. Okay. We must judge. Over in Matthew 7, as Jesus talks about judgments, notice he says in Matthew 7 and verse 6, don't give that which is holy unto the dogs. Remember that? Don't cast your pearls before swine. That, that's a judgment that we must make. Okay. It's a hard judgment. When do we know when it's time to give up, give up on someone with the gospel and go somewhere else? Okay. Notice again in Matthew 7, verses 15 and 16, Jesus said, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets, for they will appear to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly what are they? They are ravening wolves. That's right. They are ravening wolves. And so, first of all, judgment is... A command. We must make judgments. Okay. A second thing about judging is we got to judge righteously. Jesus again, John seven twenty four, judge righteous judgment. Okay. We must judge righteously. That that points to to us who are making the judgment. The character of us. How do we make sure that our character is righteous? Only one way. Okay. Romans one sixteen and. And 17 says that in the gospel is revealed the righteousness of God from faith unto faith. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. The only way we're going to learn to be righteous, we can't ever be as righteous as God, but we can be righteous. The only way we're going to learn to be righteous 
is to look into uh, the gospel. So we've got to make righteous judgments. And then a third thing about judging is it's got to be sincere. And that's what Jesus is saying there in John 7, 24. Judge not according to appearance, he says, but judge righteous judgments. Okay, make it sincere, not superficial. Don't judge based on someone's face or race. Don't, don't, we don't judge on rumor. Okay. We don't judge on someone's associates or someone's friends or family. We judge righteous uh, judgment. Brother Mark, Wednesday night, was talking about Simon the Pharisee. And Simon made a very quick judgment toward Jesus. He said about Jesus, if, if this man was truly a prophet, then he would know this lady who is coming here, that she was a true sinner, a definite sinner in the city, but this man must not be a prophet because he's allowing this woman to come in and wash his feet. He made that snap judgment toward, toward Jesus. Other of the Pharisees and Sadducees would look at Jesus eating with, with uh, the publicans and sinners and, and they would say, well, he definitely cannot be the Messiah if he's going to do that. So our, our judgment must be uh, sincere. And then a fourth thing about judging is it's got to be full of self-examination. Going back to Matthew 7, 1 through 5, that's what Jesus is saying there. He says, first, first cast out the beam that is in your own eye. And then you'll be able to see clearly, clearly how to cast out the speck that is in someone else's eye. Okay. It begins with self-examination. As Paul says in Galatians 6 and verse 1, you who are spiritual, restore such a one who is overtaken in a fault. Restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest you also be tempted. Consider yourself. Okay. We've got to be full of self-examination, not just one time, but constantly, so that we can see clearly how to help someone else. And that brings us to the next idea about judging Judging has got to be done with the eternal welfare of the other person in mind. We judge in order to help. Just like God was, was, was commanding Jeremiah to make this scroll, he says it may be that the people will turn from their way. That's the same idea. We, we, we've got the, the soul of another person in mind. Their, their welfare, trying to help trying to help. Jesus said, examine yourself so you'll be able to see clearly. That's, that's, our, that's our goal. We want to be able to see clearly exactly what we need to say and when we need to say it and do some real good with God's help. And then this about judging. It's got to be done with love, of course. It's got to be done with love. James addresses this in the book of James 4, verses 11 and 12. He says, he says, brethren, don't, don't speak evil, don't speak against one another and judge one another. The idea of speaking against there in James 4, 11, and 12 carries with it the idea of slander, of tearing someone down, of insult, of uh, degrading someone, really just trying to hurt someone with, with your words and actions. He says, don't do that. Don't do that. That that is wrong. Okay. So we, we when we make judgments, which we must make, we make them 
uh, with love. But don't you see that if we do as some would have us to do and just, just concentrate on, on some sort of unity and never make any judgments, you see how that would tear apart the Word of God? See how many verses of Scripture we would just have to, to eliminate just to, just to observe the Passover on? And then this thought this evening that's out there, the thought to emphasize love more than, than sex. Emphasize the idea of loving each other more than your regulations about sexual matters. Now this is the big payoff. This is the big payoff. For those who speak against God and Christ and the Bible, uh, there are two big payoffs. I want to be in charge, and I want to do what I want to do sexually. Okay. That's every argument, at least nowadays. Nowadays, the day in which we're living right now, nowadays, this is where we're going. I want to be in control of my life, and I want to be able to do what I want to do in a sexual way. That's what most of the arguments against God and Christ are all about uh, today. Have you thought about it? If we just ignored all the, all the scriptures about, about sexual matters and marriage, marriage matters, uh, how many scriptures? Have you just let your Bible or let your mind run through your Bible a second? Matthew 19, Jesus talked about marriage. Divorce and remarriage. In the book of Romans, chapter 1, Paul's all into the unnatural use of men and women. Romans 1. Romans 7, he talks about some of the God's regulations about remarrying after your spouse has died. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, you remember some of Paul's um, list of sins that those who do this cannot inherit the kingdom of, of heaven. Well, there's several sexual sins mentioned there. As well, the 1 Timothy 1 verses 9 and 10 has the same sort of list. Ephesians 5 also mentions uh, verse 3 mentions those kinds of lists. Hebrews 13, 4 says let marriage be had in honor among all and let the let the bed be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. God will judge. And then you got what Peter says in Second Peter and what Jude says. And then you back up to the Old Testament, Proverbs 6 and Genesis 18 and 19 with Sodom and Gomorrah. Can you see what kind of Bible you would have if you just chopped out, cut away, passed over, eliminated, ignore? What kind of Bible will you, will you have? If you just did what the world wants you to do, the world just wants us to think very loosely about sexual matters. Here, is, um, here are a few arguments that the world makes in favor of loose sexual relations. Okay, here are just a few arguments. <coughs> They will say that, the, first of all, that the person in question has, um, in other areas of his life, he's got some good qualities. 
Okay? You hear this all the time. Okay? If, if, someone, if there's a question about someone's character in relation to marriage or intimate matters, then quickly someone's going to say, and this is the devil's work, someone's going to say, well, he's so good and kind. If you, if you ever got to know him, if you just knew him in other areas of his life, you would see that, that there's a lot of goodness there. And it's, it's, a, it's a pretty decent strategy as far as strategy goes because uh, what they're saying is if you will just take the time, ignore, ignore what he's doing, okay, and get to know him, then you will grow an emotional attachment to him just like I have, and uh, then you'll see everything's all right. Okay. You know that's exactly how it is. Okay. You see this in the movies all the time. This lead actor, right? He's going to save us all from ultimate destruction. Okay? He is willing to jump off a cliff and take a few bullets for us. So it's okay with us if he sleeps around in the process. Right? Happens all the time. What are they doing? The movie directors are helping us to form an emotional attachment to him because he's going to save the world. And so you can just overlook these these little things he's doing in the process of getting there. You know it's true. You know it's true. Another thing that is done in favor of this loose sexual relations is to say that basically God has bigger fish to fry. That God is not really all that concerned about what you do at home or what somebody in a house is doing, that God has bigger fish to fry. I mean, he's got Judgment Day coming. He has all these prayers to answer. He's upholding the word. With the word, he's upholding the world itself. He's, he's causing the universe to continue as it is. This is not huge in his eyes. Okay. Basically, what you have there is idolatry. Because you're forming a vision, an image of God, that's not true, and you're worshiping that false image. That is idolatry. The more I think about it, the more I, I'm almost sure that idolatry is the most prominent sin in the world. It doesn't have to be a physical statue in order to have idolatry. And then here's another argument. That is to say, well, in some of these questionable situations, there are some positive outcomes. There are some positive outcomes. For example, if you get this, this, this older person situation and, and, and these, uh, these two older people, male and female, they come together and they really ought not to be together according to Scripture, but it's going to help them with their loneliness and probably it's going to help them financially. And also, it just may be that one of them's not coming to church right now, and so if they, if you, if they just kind of uh, cohabitate, then they just might, one of them might show up. And so that's what, that's what the devil does. That's what the world does. They, the, the world wants us to, to uh, lighten up a little bit because there may be some positive outcomes. But they don't lighten up on the one who is pointing out the sin, I can tell you that. Well, we could go on and on, 
But that's just an example that in ancient times, there was a king who physically, literally, cut up the scripture and threw it in the fire. But the same thing happens today, especially if we allow the thoughts of the world to dominate our lives. If you are subject to the Lord's calling today, the Lord calls us, according to 2 Thessalonians 2 and 14, God calls us through the gospel. We respond to that call by submitting to Him in faith, repentance, confession, and baptism. We respond to that call by being faithful to His will by turning from our sins, confessing if we go astray. Will you come this evening, right now, as we stand together, as we sing?